Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 167, A Stock Buyback Poster Child. Hi, I'm Neil. It's good to be back. It occurred to me that many of you have probably listened to this episode in a very different setting. Maybe you usually listen to the podcast going to and from work or school, maybe at the gym, or maybe during the weekend after a busy week of work or school. Hopefully all of you are navigating the very different environment that we all face. In some ways, finding a routine can be very helpful. And so maybe over the past four, five, six weeks, you've been able to find that routine. In today's episode, we are going to talk about an upcoming event. Next week, Apple is going to report earnings. And along with that earnings report, Apple is going to give an update on its capital return program. And that includes the share buyback program. But I think at the end of the episode, what we're going to discover is that much of this discussion, it's going to be about more than just what's going to take place next week. And so I think if you're listening to this episode in May or later in 2020, or maybe even in 2021, hello to all of you listening to this in 2021. If you're listening to this at a later date, I think there's still going to be quite a bit of relevant discussion. Because a lot of the implications that we're talking about here, they're not just about the next week, month, or even year, to be honest. They're going to be focused about the next decade or two. I launched Above Avalon in 2014, and over the past five years, I've gotten various questions coming in regarding Apple, technology, finance, the list goes on. There's one topic at the very top of that question list. And the second most popular topic, it's not even close. I can't really even think of what the second most popular topic is. The most popular topic has been stock buyback. There's a few reasons for this. The first is that a lot of the questions have to do with some of the mechanisms or mechanics found with buyback, and that's very understandable. Another source of questions has to do with why Apple does stock buyback. Because I think traditionally, there's this view that Stock buyback is only done by companies that are lacking growth opportunities. And that doesn't fit with Apple. So why would Apple turn to stock buyback? And and there's a whole long list of questions regarding that. And then there's a a third group of questions that are focused on the future. What does all this mean? Let's say Apple keeps buying back shares for the next 5, 10 years. What then? What, what, what's the end goal here? When you take a step back from just Apple or even the tech sector, and you look at the big picture, you look at the broader economy, the overall stock market, there has been a similar increase in questions regarding stock buyback. So this is not just about Apple. And what's happening is people are becoming almost frustrated with share buyback. It seems like share buyback is leading to more and more problems, the latest being the airline industry. Here we have a situation where airliners were repurchasing shares, and now they are seeking bailouts. And people don't like that. I think that's very understandable. It is logical to say to yourself, something is not right here. That's why it's so interesting that in the current situation where we are seeing this new round of criticism being thrown at share buyback, we have Apple 
scheduled to provide an update on its share buyback program. And that update will very likely include increasing its stock buyback program. The juxtaposition here is pretty incredible. What I think is happening is that people are going after the wrong thing with share buyback. They're criticizing the tool and not the person using the tool incorrectly. How do we fix this? How does this change? I think looking at Apple helps. Taking a look at how Apple is utilizing share buyback is going to go a long way in fine-tuning the criticism that's currently being thrown at share buyback. I think Apple has become the poster child of responsible share repurchases. And for all of this to unfold during a pandemic, I think there's going to be a lot of lessons here to learn. The best way to take a deep dive into this discussion is to go over the current status of Apple's buyback program. Where do things stand? One of the best ways of summing up Apple's repurchase program is to tally both the amount spent on buyback, but also the number of shares that Apple was able to repurchase. Since 2013, that's when Apple kicked off its repurchase program, Apple spent $327 billion to buy back 2.5 billion shares. That means Apple paid an average price of $131 per share for all of its repurchases. Apple's share price is right around $280. So there's a couple of things about that. When Apple repurchases shares, they are retired. Apple's not holding on to those shares. So that means there isn't some sort of unrealized gain of nearly $375 billion that Apple has seen. That's the first thing. The second thing is it's very easy to say, well, wait a second. If Apple's share price is $280 and Apple paid an average price of $131 for all the shares repurchased, that must mean Apple's share buyback has been a quote-unquote success or somehow Apple has quote-unquote won. It's more complicated than that. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple minutes. You can't just look at the price that they paid for shares and the current stock price and reach those conclusions. When looking at Apple's share buyback pace since 2013 on an annual basis, and this is Exhibit 1 in this week's article over at AboveAvalon.com titled Apple's $460 billion stock buyback, the big takeaway is that following U.S. tax reform, Apple has ramped its share buyback pace. In fiscal year 2018, Apple spent $73 billion on stock buyback, in 2019, the total was $67 billion. Those totals were roughly double the pace of buyback from 2015 to 2017. What happened there? Well, Apple began utilizing cash that had been in non-U.S. subsidiaries. When we look just at fiscal year 2019, Apple spent $55 billion buying back 283 million shares. That means all the shares Apple repurchased, the average price paid was $194. That's, again, just in fiscal year 2019. And that's just for open market transactions. When you then add that to the $12 billion 
of accelerated share repurchases, Apple spent a total of $67 billion on share buyback. Okay. That number, though, needs a little bit of perspective. Compare that $67 billion to the market caps of all the companies in S&P 500. $67 billion is more than the market cap of the bottom 85% of the companies in S&P 500. It's pretty remarkable. This is not your normal buyback program. Every April, Apple's board of directors in consultation with management determines an appropriate level of capital return. That includes share repurchases and quarterly cash dividends. They will assess everything from business trends, the operating environment, and Apple's financial position. The board has authorized seven consecutive increases to Apple's share buyback program. I'll just quickly go over the actual increase amount. This is starting in 2013. 50 billion, 30 billion, 50, 35, 35, 175. So for us, the takeaway there is notice that the two most recent authorization increases were the largest, with the most recent being 75 billion in 2019. When it comes to estimating the potential increase in authorization that Apple will announce next week, one way of doing this is to first look at how much authorization is remaining. So how much does Apple actually have from the previous year that's still left over? At the end of 2019, Apple had $59 billion of share repurchase authorization remaining. Now, if we assume Apple bought back at least $10 billion of shares last quarter, fiscal year 2Q20, that's January to March 2020, the company likely had somewhere around $50 billion of authorization remaining at the end of March. Could be a little bit higher, could be a little bit lower than that. This means that without additional authorization, Apple would have about seven months worth of share repurchases remaining. That tells me that it's likely Apple's board is going to announce another increase in share repurchase authorization next week. How much? My expectation is for there to be a $75 billion increase. That would allow Apple to continue buying back shares at the same pace that it has for the past 24 months. Take that $75 billion increase to authorization, add it to all of the prior authorizations, and it comes out to $460 billion. Now, in order to add some flexibility to that authorization, especially given the current situation we're in, Apple will likely have more than 12 months to actually utilize the authorization. So it's not like Apple has to buy back $75 billion over the next 12 months. That's not what sheer buyback authorization means. Instead, if operating conditions continue to deteriorate over the next 12 months, Apple's going to have the ability to slow down its buyback pace and simply run with a higher level of untapped repurchase authorization. For many companies, that's actually the norm. So you have companies announce a new share buyback program primarily just to benefit from the near-term stock price bump that's associated with the announcement. They don't actually intend to utilize the full buyback authorization. Along those lines, Apple is very different. They've approached their authorization differently because they have been an aggressive repurchaser of shares. They need 
those material increases in buyback authorization every year. So that's a good summary of where Apple's buyback program currently stands. We now turn to this latest round of criticism that's been thrown at buyback. The act of using cash on a balance sheet to buy back shares from shareholders willing to sell is no stranger to criticism. Prior to the pandemic, the most recent uproar regarding buyback occurred during the U.S. tax reform debate, as some people felt it wasn't right for companies to use cash that was in non-U.S. subsidiaries to repurchase shares and also pay cash dividends. With passenger airline travel coming to a near halt, the latest data showed something like 5% passenger utilization rates. The airliners find themselves in a dire financial situation. Delta is burning through $60 billion of cash a day. The airlines were quick, very quick, to seek U.S. taxpayer-funded bailouts in the form of grants and loans. And the entire episode has just left a bad taste in many mouths, as the airlines had been aggressive share repurchasers. Instead of establishing some kind of rainy day fund, the airlines used free cash flow to fund share repurchases at prices significantly higher than current stock prices. The thing is, the airline industry is not the only one that ran into this kind of trouble. When we go back to the 2000s, right before the financial crisis hit, you had insurance companies buying back their shares. They end up needing to issue shares at significant discounts not long after because they were holding toxic mortgage investments. Fast forward a few years after that, we had the gas and energy industry turn to share purchases when oil was at $100 a barrel. In each one of those examples, we have boards and management teams who felt it was prudent in good economic times to buy back their shares. It's fair to ask if some of these companies use share buyback primarily to hide financial and business shortcomings elsewhere. Bad actors can utilize share buyback for near-term manipulation. We could be looking at things like improper signaling to the market. So for example, a management team or board can say, we think our shares are so cheap, we're going to launch a share repurchase program. Usually that is a positive market signal. And market participants will like that. <laughs> it's generally viewed in a positive way. That's the whole point. And that's why we talked about a few minutes ago, if you watch a lot of these companies, they actually don't end up buying back their shares or they don't come close to finishing or going through their authorization. There's also financial engineering or forms of financial engineering. So for example, if you use buyback to reduce the number of shares outstanding, your earnings per share, EPS, will increase. Your return on equity, ROE, that percentage will increase, all else equal. So, so far, I'm making share buyback sound pretty bad. <laughs> I'm making it sound like a pretty awful thing. Notice how all of the situations in which share buyback led to some kind of implosion, that gets the intention. That gets the press. That gets the inside scoops, the stories, the profiles. There's a reason for that. Get the other side when you look at Apple. 
a very good argument can be made that Apple has become the poster child of responsible sheer repurchases. The company has relied on its stellar free cash flow to fund share repurchases over the years. Prior to U.S. tax reform and Apple keeping cash generated outside the U.S. informed subsidiaries, Apple issued debt at roughly the same pace as foreign cash generation. This resulted in Apple having $285 billion of cash, cash equivalents, and marketable securities on the balance sheet at the end of the first quarter 2018. After two years of aggressive share repurchases, Apple's cash total is now closer to $200 billion. One observation that I had is that a lot of the criticism that has been thrown at the airliners was that they used all of their free cash flow to buy back shares. And that was viewed as a bad thing. That was viewed as a red flag. Look at Apple. Here you have another company using all of its free cash flow for share buyback and also cash dividends. Is that a red flag for Apple? By funding buyback with free cash flow, share repurchases have had zero impact on the amount of cash Apple wants to spend on organic growth initiatives, including R&D, M&A, and CapEx. Apple is using truly excess cash that it has no use for to repurchase its shares. What's a major difference between the airliners and Apple? Apple is following a net cash neutral strategy, which means the amount of cash held in the balance sheet will eventually equal the amount of outstanding debt. Why? Well, it's partly to provide a buffer against adverse market conditions and to retain M&A flexibility. When you look at Apple's current debt holdings, this amounts to the company holding approximately a $100 billion cash cushion in the event of a rainy day. On top of that, Given Apple's unique CapEx light business model, the company is able to generate tens of billions of dollars of free cash flow each year, even with lower sales due to a global recession. So when you look at the airliners versus Apple, it's not that just simply taking free cash flow and putting it in share buyback is the red flag. Instead, one needs to look at the bigger picture. You need to address how does the rest of the balance sheet look. What happens to the business model if we enter a recession or a depression or a pandemic? How does that company's access to capital change? You can see there are a lot of moving pieces to consider. Since share buyback makes financial sense when repurchases are done at a share price that is less than the company's intrinsic value, it is much harder to assess a buyback's effectiveness, or the amount of wealth transferred between shareholders selling and holding shares. I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end of the episode, the aspect of wealth transfer and share buyback. In theory, management teams are in the best position to estimate their company's intrinsic value. However, it's easy to see management teams overestimating their strengths, ignoring or downplaying weaknesses and risk. When we look at Apple, we have a design company tasked with making tools for people. So that means having an inside view of the product pipeline plays a major role in estimating Apple's intrinsic value. You can't just assume that the future cash flow stream will reflect iPhones, iPads, Apple Watches, 
the surfaces that we know of today. Instead, it's more appropriate to think of which industries Apple's going to be playing in over the next couple decades. This may end up giving Apple management an advantage when it comes to assessing buyback's effectiveness. This is why when we talked about the average price that Apple paid for all of its repurchased shares, $131 per share, that's the average price. You can't just look at that, look at the current stock price and say, well, share buyback has, has been effective. It's been a success. You have to look at intrinsic value. Is intrinsic value above $131 per share? That's going to help you answer the question of a buyback program's effectiveness much more than just looking at the current stock price. When we look at the current pandemic, the buyback discussion for every public company has changed. Using Apple as an example, it's not that the company's intrinsic value, which again reflects Apple's cash flow generating capability in the future, has changed because of economic fallout related to the pandemic. Instead, dislocations in credit markets have led to a renewed focus on liquidity and balance sheet preservation. In times of unknown, it makes sense to want to have more flexibility on the balance sheet. Apple has shown the willingness in the past to pause share repurchases based on adverse market trends. It is possible that Apple paused the buyback last month while credit markets were acting abnormal. Apple could also have seen the situation in China back in February and concluded that that is going to become a problem for the rest of the world. However, given its stellar balance sheet, there likely is no company in a better position than Apple to buy back shares during a pandemic. That is why I think there is going to be renewed attention placed on Apple's buyback program in the coming months. As we wrap up our discussion, I think it's important to go over a few main takeaways when it comes to share buyback. The harsh reality found with share repurchases is that not every company should be buying back their stock. While we can debate just how much of a financial cushion a company should keep in case of a pandemic or natural disaster, it's much easier to say that overextending a balance sheet in order to buy back shares is unwise. As the airline industry shows us, additional considerations that should be prioritized when assessing a share repurchase program are the company's business model, ability to access capital in adverse market conditions, the difference between share price and intrinsic value. And when we look at intrinsic value, it should reflect the sustainability or lack thereof of the future cash flow stream. Share buyback is one of a handful of tools that boards and management teams have to properly manage balance sheets. While some companies have no purpose using the tool, others can benefit immensely from the same tool. Instead of simply casting off share repurchases as ineffective, inappropriate, or even dangerous, attention should go to assessing how a company is using share buyback. The criticism shouldn't be placed on the tool itself. Instead, it should be on whether or not a company is using that tool correctly. That's going to do it for today's episode. As mentioned a few minutes ago, if you are interested in more of the mechanics of share buyback, a little bit more of the details as to what's going on, the value creation process, the wealth transfer dynamic, 
I did write a report a couple months ago titled Share Buyback 101, an Examination of Apple's Share Repurchase Strategy. This is a 4,400-word report, and it went over everything from the technical details, reasons for share buyback, financial signaling, how to judge a buyback's effectiveness, and long-term objectives found with share repurchases. I will include a link to the report in the show notes. The report is available exclusively to above Avalon members. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in this podcast and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I think you would find a lot of value in Above Avalon membership. The cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily updates about Apple. These are emails, each one's 2,000 words, sent Monday through Thursday. I talk about everything from Apple business and strategy analysis, my perspective and observations on Apple competitors, current news. I go over my financial estimates for Apple. And I offer full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. To get a taste of the different kinds of topics covered in daily updates, just head on over to aboveavalon.com and then go to the daily updates page. You will see all of the headlines for the stories found in the daily updates. Since Apple doesn't operate in a vacuum, I end up talking about many of Apple's competitors and various observations I see from the industries that Apple plays in. So just in the past week, I've talked about AT&T, Netflix, Facebook, Roku, and the list goes on. If it is of interest to Apple, it is something I will discuss in the daily updates. To receive these emails directly in your inbox, all you have to do is become an Above Avalon member, head on over to aboveavalon.com, and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. In addition to receiving the exclusive daily updates and accessing the above Avalon reports, members also have access to my fully functional and adjustable earnings model for Apple that's available at no additional cost. There is an archive, so you can go back and read close to 900 daily updates that have been previously sent to members. And there is a forum that I moderate that usually has a pretty active and lively discussion on both Apple and the tech industry in general. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by its members. So if you are currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you are planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Try to stay safe out there. Bye.